Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home. So you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, I recently read a fascinating article in Nature entitled, How Iceland Hammered COVID with Science. It details how Iceland, the island country with a population of 365,000, was able to test their population, trace cases, enforce public health measures, and reduce their COVID numbers to the point where they could reopen their country for tourism, which contributes so greatly to their economy. I started to wonder, how could the United States apply some or all of the learnings from the Iceland experience to help fight COVID here? Decode Genetics, a global leader in analyzing and understanding the human genome, has played a crucial role in shaping Iceland's COVID strategy, working hand in hand with Iceland's Director of Health, the government agency that oversees healthcare services. Here to tell us the story of Iceland's COVID approach is Dr. Kerry Stephenson, who is the founder and CEO of Decode Genetics in Iceland. I want to start, if I could, Dr. Stephenson, and ask you, what got you into all of this? I mean, you're sitting in Iceland and you follow an interesting track that clearly wasn't planned. That is correct. This was not something that was planned in advance. But basically, when the news of COVID-19 made it to Iceland, it was clear to us that this was an all-hands-on-deck kind of a moment. So when you're living in a small community where the distance between people is relatively small, it is so much easier 
to find a way to contribute. And that is what we did. We knew that the Icelandic healthcare system was not equipped to test as much as needed. And we at Decode are extremely well equipped with incredible number of extremely talented young people who are basically almost trained for doing this. And I'd argue that basically our 25 years of work looking for variants in the human genome that affect the risk of common diseases was almost just a preparation for dealing with something like COVID-19. The beauty of the small community is that I could just pick up the phone. I phoned the, the Prime Minister of Iceland and I told him, we are going to come in and we are going to help. And it's not just that we organize testing of a very large percentage of the Icelandic population. We sequenced the genome of the virus from every person infected, which is the only place in the world that did that. And why was it important to sequence the virus? Because by looking at the combination of mutations in the virus, we could determine where from the virus came. For example, we could determine that, yes, in the beginning, the virus came mostly from the ski slopes of Austria and Italy. But gradually, more and more of the virus started to come from Great Britain. And once the virus was in the country, we could determine who infected whom. For example, if, if Peter was supposed to have infected John, Peter and John had to have the same combination of mutations. And the reason we knew that it was Peter who infected John is that John had one additional mutation in addition to Peter. So it could not have been Peter who infected John. And all kinds of tricks like that we could use to help in mapping the spread of the virus in the country, help with the tracking of the contacts. And basically, it worked perfectly and very quickly after we started our work on screening widely, sequence the virus, track the contacts, etc. We started to put the picture together, write up scientific papers to publish, to inform the rest of the world on the way in which we were doing this. You had a quarter century where you had been living out a dream. You'd raised the money to make the dream possible. You had then done the work and pulled together the teams. I mean, Iceland was extraordinarily fortunate. And if you had not been in Iceland, they wouldn't have had the capacity to do what you did. Newt, it doesn't matter what it is. It is always, in the end, individuals who make a difference. It is the initiative of the individual and then the individual who brings together the team. And I was fortunate, as I was professor at Harvard, I got this idea of starting a large population genetics initiative in Iceland. So I left Harvard, came to Iceland, and I started it from scratch. When I came to Iceland, there was no tradition, there was no know-how, there was no experience in doing biomedical research like this. But it is astonishing. I recruit almost solely people from Iceland, and there is an astonishing collection of people who work here. But you recruit in a very different way from the way in which you recruit in America, because everyone you recruit into a company like this in Iceland is a special purpose instrument. You do not expect the people who come in to be able to do everything, but you expect them to be extremely good at something. And when you put together basically a collage 
or a patchwork like that, and you end up with something that is absolutely spectacular. So I would pitch the team I have here at Decode against any university in the world when it comes to human genetics. And these people were extremely eager to participate. So when we started to screen in the beginning of March, basically people worked here, you know, 18, 20 hours a day. No one complained. No one asked, you know, when can we go home? No one asked whether it was a Saturday or a Sunday. But everyone, you know, put the shoulder to the wheel and enjoyed it. It was a difficult period. It was great fun. All right? What percent of the population of Iceland do you now have genetic data for? We have insight into the genetics of every person living here. We have sequenced the whole genome of a very large percentage of the population. We have genotyped using so-called genotyping chip of about 60% of the population, and we can infer there one awful lot about the genome of the rest of the population. And this has allowed us to lead the world in this population genetics that we are doing. And you will find all over the world sort of replications of what we have done. The UK Biobank is a British establishment. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug right, needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. <laughs> you can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think it's fascinating. You are sitting at Harvard. You are already a well-published expert researcher. You have a big idea that's sort of theoretical. And you not only go back home to Iceland, which is probably the right-sized population, and because of its unique genetic history of being almost overwhelmingly people from Scandinavia, you have a unique population. But you then go off and decide that to get this done right, you've got to get private capital because you wouldn't be able to save momentum if you had to go from grant to grant to grant. And you actually go out and raise the capital. That's pretty amazing. How did you do that? I mean, what was the core of your sales pitch? You see, I uh, took advantage of uh, one of the unique features of American society, which is the venture capital world. And basically, venture capital is still almost solely an American sport. There's very little of real venture capital in Europe, for example. So I basically put together a story. I, the story I told was that I'm going to go to Iceland. I'm going to do something that no one has done before, which is that I'm going to gather a very large amount of data on one population, and I'm going to gather this data independent of the questions I might ask of the data later. Because once you begin to collect data based on your preconceived ideas as to what you might want to discover or the questions you might want to ask, you begin to generate biases in your data, all right? So I said, I'm going to gather very large amount of data on the same population, mostly independent of questions I might ask. And the population, in addition to being of the right size, has what is called a founder effect. And the founder effect is rooted in the fact that there is a relatively small number of ancestors that account for a fairly large percentage of the current population. So if there is a rare mutation in the founders, it becomes relatively common in the later population. And I told him, I will go there and I will do human genetics like it has never been done before. And the fact of the matter is that we have, all right? On this barren, wet rock in the North Atlantic, we put up an operation that has been out-competing the big universities in your wonderful country. So I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of having started it from scratch, and it has worked nicely. But let me correct one thing. You see, we are not just of uh, Scandinavian origin. There's a book called Book of Settlement, that says that Iceland was settled by Norwegian Vikings who stopped by in Ireland and picked up slaves. And we did a very large genetic anthropology study, and we used the Y chromosome as marker of paternal lineage, and we used the mitochondria, 
which are the energy stations of the cell as a marker of maternal lineage because they are passed from mother to offspring. And we showed that in current day Icelanders, 75% of the Y chromosome are Norwegian, 65% of the mitochondria are Celtic. So Iceland was settled by Norwegian boys who went to Great Britain, picked up women, and went up to Iceland and settled down. And there is no mention in the book of settlement whether the women came with mutual consent or not, but they went up to Iceland. And it's interesting because we started in Iceland to write books substantially sooner than elsewhere in Scandinavia. So we probably brought with us, or the women brought with them, substantial amount of their Celtic culture, the culture of the storytellers, all right? So we are grateful for that. I'm half Irish and half Scots. So you're now telling me I may well have relatives scattered all across Iceland. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and actually, there are many things in your past news that indicates that you would have been a reasonable team member during the time of the Vikings. <laughs> yes, I think that's right. <laughs> I concede that. It's even more complex. Then we went to skulls from the time of the settlement of Iceland, all right? We isolated DNA from the skulls of the settlement, and we looked at the same genetic markers. And then we compared that to these markers in current-day Icelanders versus current-day Norwegians and current-day Brits. And the amazing thing is that these genetic markers from the time of the settlement, from the skulls, have not changed. They are the same in Great Britain today and the same in Norway today, but they are different in Iceland. So over these thousand years, we have changed more than the Brits, in spite of the fact that we were isolated, or actually because we were isolated, because we have gone through so many population bottlenecks. And when you go through a population bottleneck, there's a phenomenon that is called drift that takes place, because the chromosomes are sorted into the sperms and the eggs in a random manner. And if there is a tight bottleneck, you will lose genetic diversity. So living in Iceland in this harsh nature, all right, for 1,000 to 1,100 years has changed our genetics more than the genetics have changed in the Brits, in spite of the fact that there has been a continuous stream of people coming through there. That's an interesting aspect, how the environment is constantly changing us. I have to tell you one quick story that I think fits exactly your thinking, but you can correct me. If you go to the American Museum of Natural History, they have a huge hall that is the birds of the South Pacific that was collected in the 20s and 30s by a great ornithologist named Beebe. When we ended up in a war with Japan, we discovered that the only maps available for that region had been gathered in the 20s and 30s by the ornithologists for the purpose of tracking the bird populations. Mm -hmm. And so here you had a basic research tool that nobody had any idea would be useful in terms of dealing with World War II, but it was sitting there and they were able to borrow it and use it. I think there's a huge argument for basic research that then makes possible later on an amazing array of applied research. But if you go in the opposite direction, you can't go from applied to creating a model of basic research. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense and basically because we had all of the data we had when the epidemic came,
because we have developed all the software systems to manage exactly this type of data, the software systems to analyze exactly this data. Because we had the talent to do this, we could dive into it, and basically three days after we had decided we were going to pitch in, we were screening for you know 24 hours a day. If we had not been doing what we had done for the past 25 years, there is not a snowball's chance that this could have been done in Iceland. One of the things that I feel compelled to say is that one of the reasons we did well is that this is a very cohesive society where an awful lot of what we do is rooted in this fondness that we have for each other, that we are used to help each other when things go wrong. And I think that the societal cohesiveness is a fundamental reason that he did so well with this epidemic. People did abide by the rules. The measures that we put in place to contain the epidemic, they were followed by everyone. And I think that is admirable that this nation that is usually fairly unruly, when a crisis comes, we turn our backs together. I have a lot of interest invested in the United States of America. I have a daughter and three grandsons who live in America are American. So I really want this large country of yours to do well. And it has been going through tumultuous times, right? Yeah, that's right. You know, you see a certain parallelism, I think. If you look at Korea and Japan and Taiwan and Singapore, that their cultures lead them to a more immediate adaptation to crisis mentality. And they were all able to get people to change their behavior much, much faster than we can. Also, the messages in your country were so mixed. Yes. Let's put it this way. I think that your former president would have done much better if he had listened to scientists. I think that's right. I mean, I think that the challenge you have is that even among the public health, there was constant infighting. Your earlier point that when you have 375,000 people, you can have an intimacy at the senior levels where people can actually be practical. We have probably more than that number of people in our public health bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's a huge problem for us right now. We've grown beyond our ability to be competent. Yeah, but that's true. But in biology, just like in physics, etc., there are some things that are indisputable, all right? And when it comes to the containment of an epidemic, there are certain basic factors that you basically should do. And they weren't done in the States, unfortunately. And it is so sad because of this enormous potential, what we know in the rest of the world, when it comes to containing an epidemic like this, we learned from Americans, all right? And then we sit here the rest of the world and watch you screw this up. You've probably heard a lot about electrified vehicles lately. Well, Toyota has electrified options for every lifestyle. We've got hybrids, no plug needed. But we also have plug-in hybrids, if that's your thing. (laughs) You can even go 100% electric in the Toyota BZ4X. With so many options for reducing carbon emissions, 
Toyota is electrified, diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For Americans, could you walk us through, from the very beginning of discovering that there was a pandemic, what were the steps that Iceland took in sequence that enabled them to have such a dramatically better containment strategy? First of all, we are an island in the middle of the Atlantic. Don't forget that. But when we learned of the emerging epidemic coming out of China, we started to screen for the virus more than a month before the first case was diagnosed. So we started to screen. We anticipated that this would come. Then when the cases started to pile in from the ski slopes of Austria and Italy, Decode you know, started to screen. And we put our entire company on the screening, and keep in mind, we are owned by Amgen, an American corporation, and I just phoned the CEO of Amgen, and I got his permission. No, it's not correct. I sent him an email, and I got back an email that said, do whatever you can to help the government dealing with this. And this entire time, since the arrival of the epidemic, we have been using resources 
of decrogenetics that come from Antgen. No questions asked to help to contain the epidemic in Iceland. And for that, I'm extremely grateful. So even the very capitalistic big corporations at a moment like this, they rise up and show what they are made of, all right? It is interesting that in attempts to develop vaccines and medicines to treat this disease, the pharmaceutical industry, which is usually looked upon as the bad guys, have been extraordinarily noble. They have turned their backs together, they have been helping each other, and they have pledged not to use these vaccines or these medicines they are making, not to use them to get extraordinarily a profit from it, but to distribute it at a low price. And I think that is wonderful. That is the nice side of the pharmaceutical industry. So when you began the tracing and the testing, was there any point where you closed the entire society down to isolate it? No, we never closed the society down. When we started to screen, when the cases started to sort of pile up, what we did is that we closed the orchestra halls, the movie theaters, we kept all of the stores open, we kept the elementary schools open, but we closed the universities and the higher schools of education. We insisted on two meters social distancing. We were very focused on having people wash their hands, etc. And we had extraordinarily competent team doing the contact tracing. And it is interesting that the contact tracing in Iceland was run by the police department, all right? And they did an extraordinary job of it. It was spectacularly well done. We allowed the use of an app on cellular phones that allowed sort of to determine who had been close to someone else who was infected. And then we used our viral sequencing data to determine the way and the direction in which the virus spread. With the app and the contact tracing, you were able to pursue a policy of selective isolation. Yes. Rather you, than trying to close the whole society. You, you are absolutely correct. By using science, we could use selective isolation rather than closing down the society. And we put those infected in isolation and we put their contacts in a two-week quarantine. And those who were diagnosed were kept in isolation until they had been asymptomatic for a week. Now, as I understand, I saw a brief article the other day, you actually, as a country, made the decision to reopen tourism. And we, I saw some note you'd had people from like 46 countries that have come through. How are you able to do that? We did that by screening people when they came in. But unfortunately, screaming once is not sufficient. So basically on the 19th of August, we had to implement a different system where people who came into the country were screened when they came in, were put in five-day quarantine and then screened again. And now that the epidemic is surging in all of the countries around us, the number of cases has been increasing in Great Britain and Germany all over the place, that basically having the borders of Iceland controlled by double screening separated by a quarantine is the reason that, you know, yesterday I think we had two cases or something like that. We could by monitoring our borders closely, we are managing to have a reasonably normal life in Iceland.
Would it take too big a ramp up for countries like a Great Britain or a Germany to be able to apply your model? It's complicated. For Germany, it is complicated because they are surrounded by other countries where with borders that are not particularly well watched. Great Britain certainly could do it. Great Britain hasn't done much better than the United States, which is another interesting thing with all of their spectacular academic institutions. They haven't done any better, all right? And in spite of the National Health Service and all of that, they haven't done particularly well. Do you expect everyone in Iceland to get the vaccination? We are a part of this pact that includes the European Union that is, you know, buying vaccine and distributing vaccine. And it is happening very slowly. Pfizer is behind schedule in delivering vaccine. AstraZeneca is behind schedule. My guess is that we are not going to be done with vaccinating our country until, you know, late next fall. And the same is going to apply to most countries in Europe. The United States is going to be a little bit ahead. They're probably going to be two to three months ahead of us. If you can take the numbers that people are throwing around seriously. And one of the things that we will have to deal with now, once this year is over, is the fact that these Western parts of the world, these rich countries, have bought up over 90% of all of their vaccine produced. So we are going to have the third world, you know, devastated by disease for a long time after we have come out of this. In many ways, it is incredibly undesirable to have so unequitable distribution of vaccine, even if you're only focusing on our attempts to put this virus to rest, to have a large population pockets where the disease is rampant, is going to make it much more complicated to bring it under control. Do you worry that the mutations that we're starting to see that one of them could break out in a way that would make the current vaccines irrelevant because they simply wouldn't be susceptible to it? I'm not particularly concerned about these mutations. There is an incredible number of mutations. This virus has infected almost 100 million people, so it has had so enormous opportunity to mutate. And even though people say that the British version of the virus is more infectious than most of it, it is possibly correct, but it isn't dramatically more infectious. And exactly the same methods that are used to contain the spread of the virus in general apply to the British version. We have had a bunch of individuals infected with the British virus. One of the things that happens very often when a virus like this mutates to become more infectious is that at the same time it becomes less harmful because it serves the interest of the virus to have the people who are infected as healthy as possible so they can move around and spread the virus. But there are those who insist that the British form is a little bit more dangerous, but these are differences of degree, not of nature. And then the question is, is the South African variant going to escape the protection from the vaccine? And there is very little data supporting that. It may be a little bit less protected by the Moderna vaccine than the usual form of the virus, but not dramatically so. We will contain this virus with vaccines, 
And even if one form would escape, it takes these companies today extraordinarily short time to develop a new vaccine. So I don't buy the notion that we will have this virus around for a long time and this will be seasonal or whatever. We're going to get out of this. On that cheerful note, I'm going to thank you. This has been wonderful. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Carrie Stephenson. You can read more about how Iceland conquered COVID on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Henry. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners at Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.